I didn't think that through, uh, playing that before I preached. Um, <laughs> that, yeah, it's invitation time. You're exactly right. Uh, a lot of folks are going, mm-hmm, let's go. Uh, that was the great S.M. Lockeridge, uh, pastor from who 50s and 60s, I think, at Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, California. Uh, man, I'd love to have heard him live. Uh, that that there's there is no greater pastoral description, sermonic description of Jesus than that right there. And that's what we're getting into this morning a little bit. Psalm chapter two. We're taking a little break. We are breaking from the old te- church in the Old Testament, letting called out the church in the Old Testament. We're going moving into the New Testament this week or, or next week rather. This message is kind of our palate cleanser. Uh, before we get into that, but it's also a bridge to that. Uh, it, it's a great psalm. I didn't plan it this way. Uh, I didn't go and choose Psalm 2 because it did such a good job of getting us into next week, but it does. It gets us to next week wonderfully. Psalm chapter 2, uh, these 12 uh, verses. James Montgomery Boyce was a Presbyterian pastor in, I want to say, Philadelphia. Uh, in the middle of the century, wrote a poem, and I think it's uh, in the slides, I think I put it up there. God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side's winning. That's a great introduction, I believe, to Psalm chapter 2. I believe it's a great description of what life is for us right now. And the application at the end of the message is going to cover three specific areas that I just easily thought of as I read through Psalm chapter 2. But let's read that together now. Psalm chapter 2, all 12 verses. It says, Why do the nations rebel and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. This this psalm, if if your Bible has notes at the top, it's probably got... uh, so something like the coronation psalm or coronation of a king or something like that. And that's what this psalm was used for, the coronation of a king. Possibly David's coronation, maybe just the Davidic kings that came after him, his, his lineage. When they wrote this psalm, they had in mind their king. But what God had in mind when he gave this psalm to be written was his son. And we're going to see that as we move through this. But he doesn't begin there. The psalmist doesn't begin there. God doesn't begin there as he inspires uh, this psalm to be written. He begins with the world. 
Specifically, he begins with the world's hostility. Verses 1 through 3 tell us why, or ask us, why do the nations rebel and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. We see here the world's hostility, and it's the world's hostility to, hostility to God. We see first futile plotting by the people, people planning things, people putting together schemes that, that are futile. Well, why are they futile? Well, they're futile because they are going against God's plan, God's vision, God's will. Anything that goes against God's will will not stand. We can be confident of that. It's futile plotting by the people. But then we see not just the people, but the rulers. Treason against God by the leaders. It says that the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Does that sound like any government you're familiar with at the moment? Maybe one or two governments. The leaders plot against God. They make plans to throw out God's standards and replace God's standards with their own. We see it time and time again. We see it with our own Supreme Court. We see it even locally, I would assume, having not been here too long, but I would assume there have been times when we have had issue with even local governments, state governments, doing things that are against God's will. We see the government doing it over and over. God calls it treason. When the governments of the earth turn against him, it doesn't matter. We're not off the hook because the government, the government official isn't one of God's people. That doesn't matter because it's not talking about Israel here. It's not saying Israel's kings have turned against God. It's the nations, the kings of the nations have turned against God. We all owe God honor and glory. And then we know that judgment comes when, when it's not there. And then verse 3 kind of tells us, or does tell us, why they're turning against God. Why is there rebellion against God? Why are, is there futile plotting? Because, verse 3, let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The, the leaders are saying, the, the, the people are saying, we are in bondage to God. It's perceived as a bad thing to be a bondservant of God. And if we examine the, the, the legislation, just in our own world, in, the own, in, our, in our last few years, they're throwing off the restraints of godly living. And saying, sin is no longer sin. That's what they want to do here. Throw off the godly restraints. It is perceived as bondage that I must be like God tells me to be. We can, we can trace atheism to the fact that nobody, uh, the atheist does not want to be subjugated to God. Evolution, Darwinistic evolution, the whole purpose is to throw off a creator because if he created me, then I owe something to him, quite possibly everything. So if I can say that I wasn't created, if I only evolved, then I have no standards, I, I have no one to whom I am in, I am indebted i have no one to whom that i owe, uh, to whom i owe allegiance and so we see that over and over this perceived bondage by god he is holding me back he is uh restraining me from being what i truly am 
We see that in the homosexual movement. I was born this way. I, I'm, I am this way. And any biblical restraint on the way I feel is God holding me back. But it's not just homosexuals. It's heterosexuals who want to have sex with everybody they can. Don't tell me I can't because this is what makes me feel good. And we can apply it to sin after sin after sin. It is the desire to throw off this perceived bondage. God is holding me back. He's keeping me from the fun that I could have. So I want to throw him off. Feudal plotting, treason by the leaders, all due to this perceived bondage by God. But what does God do in response? Does he cower? Does he wring his hands and wonder, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with these people? Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. And then, and, and some people don't like this verse, the Lord ridicules them. This is sarcasm, y'all. This, this is my love language. This is, this is God snickering at people. But, but, but before we get there, as, as much fun as this is, look at what he's doing. The one enthroned. There, there's a reason they use the word enthroned. Because he's sitting. If I preached from here today, what would y'all think? You don't have to say it out loud. I, I, I've got a few ideas. Um, you would think, what, what in the world? Is it not important enough for him to stand here and, and talk to us? You'd, you'd have any, any number of, of ideas of how this is uh, unfitting for me. Well, think of a king who is, is, is responding to something going on. Just think of movies. Think of how when, when someone comes into the throne room and announces, my king, they're, they're attacking the gates, what would, what would the king do? Instead, the Bible tells us God is seated. You get the image of him looking down at what's going on and, and thinking and saying, this isn't even worth standing up for. As a matter of fact, you get this image of him going, <laughs> look at them rebel. Look at the little people. That's the image that we get here. It doesn't sit well with us. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like, wait, God's being, God's being a junior high student. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're, he's, he's really, he's mocking them? Yes. This is what God led his writer to write in Psalm 2. He is unmoved by their rebellion. He is uh, mocking, laughing at their plans. The people plot, and God snickers. The kings commit treason, and God laughs because he is not moved by the, the, the ideas of the people of the nations, the, the plotting of the people, the plans of the people. And then the smile goes away. And, and, and we realize that, that God wasn't joking. This, this enthronement, him, him seated and looking over and smiling, it, 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 wasn't a, it wasn't a happy smile. Because he goes on to say, then he speaks to them in his anger. 
like that. We have gone from a, a, a God who is mocking and laughing to a God who is angry. How dare they? You, you, you have no power over him, is the laughter. But you do have a responsibility to him, that is the anger. You can plot, you can scheme, you can throw off these chains as you say it, but the wrath is coming. How many of you know that terror is the appropriate response when, God's, uh, when God speaks in anger? I do. When God speaks in anger, that is the time that we should be terrified. When God speaks to us and says, when, when we think, oh, he's joking around with me, oh, dad gum, he ain't joking. That is the time to be scared. To be terrified of what is coming. To be terrified of what we will, he will do if we do not turn to him. And the people, the kings, the leaders should be terrified because he is speaking to them in his anger and in his wrath. We talked about wrath this morning in Sunday school. I love it. Every week, every week, my Sunday school class feeds my sermon. And I guarantee you, if you are as interested in hearing from God, your Sunday school class will feed the sermon too. If you are here for Bible study, I promise you God will speak to you. If you are here for the sermon, and you are, I promise you God will speak to you. If you are able and ready to hear from God, he will speak because he has a message for you. And then God says, why? Why do I laugh at you? Why do I mock your, your plans and your treason? And why do I speak in anger and wrath? He says in uh, verse 6, because I have consecrated my king on Zion, my uh, holy mountain. Y'all, he has a king in place. God is not concerned about the plans and the plots of the people. God is not concerned about rebellious kings and nations who won't follow him. He is not concerned that somehow his will will be thwarted by people who are determined to thwart his will. God has a king in place. You're not him, and neither am I. God has a plan. Tim Keller, a minister in New York City, said, to be intimidated by the world is as spiritually fatal as being overly attracted to it. Let me say that again. To be intimidated by the world is as spiritually fatal as being overly attracted to it. We have no fear from the world. We have no fear from the plots of kings and governments. We have no fear from the next elected president. Doesn't matter who he or she is. We have no fear because we are not intimidated by the world. God mocks and laughs at our elections and says, I have a king in place. We, church, follow a king. We don't follow a president. We follow a heavenly king. We don't follow an earthly ruler. We are part of a kingdom that will never fail, not a part of a country that is here and gone as a vapor or as the grass withers in the field. We follow a king who will never fail. And God tells us, don't be concerned about these things. Trust me. And it's not just this king in place. It is the rightful king. And God describes him through the actual words of the king. We've, we've changed speakers 
three times now once we get into verse 7. Verse 1 through 3 is kind of the narrator. Uh, verse 3 uh, telling us actually what the, the people and the kings are saying. Verse four through, verses 4 through 6 is God talking. I have consecrated my king on Zion. And then verse 7 through 9 is the king himself talking. And he says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He, God, said to me, the king, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. Maybe your, your translation says the begotten king uh, in, in verse uh, 7. You are my king, today I have begotten you. And we, we, we've heard that verse so much, particularly from John 3.16, that we had this idea, and actually from Genesis and other places, we had this idea of birth. Well, here, we're not talking about birth. He's not talking about someone who was born to be king. He's talking about making or appointing them king. It kind of brings a different image, maybe, to our John 3.16 passage. Jesus was never born as the third person of the Trinity. He has always existed. Certainly, he was born on earth, but he was always appointed. He was eternally begotten by God to be the king of our hearts. And so, we see here that the psalmist talks about, through the words of this king, you have begotten me, or today I have become uh, your father, God said to the king. And what is the extent of his reign? The psalmist tells us the extent of his reign is everything, everywhere, and everyone. Tell me who is left out of that. Tell me what place on earth, what place in our universe is left out of that description. No one. Nothing. Today we, we look around and we wonder, where is God sometimes? Oh, I, I know nobody here does because we're, we're all very spiritual, but sometimes some people wonder, where is God in all of this? If God is in control, why is so-and-so our option for president? Or why are there wars in the Middle East? Why do we see pictures of that little boy from Aleppo? When I, I don't know if you've seen that picture. I hope you have. Little boy that was pulled out of a house that had been bombed. And I could not look at that picture without crying because I have a boy about the same size, about the same age. Why? Where are you, God? We ask that question sometimes. Right now, we lose track. We wonder how and why and when. And God says, it's coming. He is, no, uh, he, he is not off of his throne. He is not out of control. God is still God. And one day we will see this extent of his reign. One day, read the end of the book. One day it's over. One day Jesus comes and there is truly his rule over everything, everywhere, and everyone. We will see that someday. Right now he is begging us. Will we trust him? Will we take his message to places where the message hasn't been heard, like maybe Aleppo, Syria? Will we take it to places, y'all, I, I am, 
I'm friends with some folks on Facebook. I, I didn't plan on telling the story, and I really don't have time to do it. But when we were in Nixon, we embraced an unreached, unengaged people group in western Spain. And we were a small church without a lot of financial uh, resources, and I had no idea how we were going to do it. We made two mission trips, and actually the first one was training, International Mission Board training for me and Etta, Etta and me, and we, we prayer walked our unreached, unengaged people group in western Spain. The second trip was six, eight months later with a group of six or seven people, I don't remember how many, and we prayer walked these three little towns of about 10,000 people total in western Spain, and that was it. That was all we could do. We couldn't do, we never made it back. We, we couldn't do anymore. We even lost contact with the one person that we knew there that we thought, hey, possibly this might could be some sort of entree into the area. Didn't work out. Then I heard about a year ago of some IMB missionaries who were focusing on these three towns. And two weeks ago, well, actually about six months ago, eight months ago, I learned that they had finally translated the New Testament into these people's language, this people group's language. And then about two or three months ago, I learned that these missionaries were passing out uh, these New Testaments in the town. And not just any town, there are three little towns there. And, and there's a, a good-sized town and a, a, a medium-sized town and a small town. Sounds like Goldilocks and Three Bears, right? Um, the, the small town is spiritually hard. Two places in my life I've ever been that I could say I felt spiritual oppression, felt darkness, the temple in Salt Lake City and this little town in Spain. Only two places I have ever felt that. They handed out a few hundred New Testaments in that little town. Three days ago, they handed out a couple of hundred more in another town. I tell you that because I, to, to let you know that when God tells you there are people that need to hear the gospel and you say, God, I can't get there, I can't do much, all I can do is take a few people in prayer walk, he says, be faithful because people need to hear the gospel and I will use you. I will show you the extent of my reign. If I can do that now, if I can do that right there, just you, did, you prayed, that's all you did, and look what I'm doing. Imagine what I can do if you are even more willing, more pliable in my hands to show the extent of your reign. And then we see the expression of his reign. Power, power, power. That's all we see. He says, I will, uh, <clears throat> I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. That's the extent the expression, you will break them with a rod of iron, you will shatter them like pottery. Our God is powerful. Our God is not taken surprise. Our God by surprise. Our God is not resting. He is not waiting because he just doesn't know what to do. Again, he's not wringing his hands over, what am I going to do about the world? God is patient, more patient than I would be. Dare say more patient than most of us would be. He is doing his work to reach people. And as, as powerful as it is, as, de, as, as decreed as it is, that ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. I will let you wipe them out. That's what God is telling his king. You can have your kingdom right now. That's what Satan offered Jesus. I'll give it to you, Jesus. Just bow down and worship me. You can have it all. No cross, no pain. You're it. Just worship me. And Jesus said, 
not the plan. Because God is patient. There is grace and forgiveness. That is also the expression of God's reign. The king's reign, rather. When Jesus, when, when the king comes, I don't want to give it away, when the king comes, the expression of his reign will be for grace and forgiveness. No, no man, no sin, no sickness, no devil can stand in the way of God's plan, in the way of God's kingdom. And let me reiterate, no sin. Because God is gracious and forgiving. Because look at verse 10. Look at our required response, the required response. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Wait a minute, God. You just told them, you just laughed at them, you just mocked their plans, and you just told them that when I have, my king is already in place, and he will destroy you. But look at verse 10. But kings, listen. Listen to God. Plead with them. Listen to God. Offer them time to repent, to come back. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, he begs them. Serve the Lord with reverential awe. And rejoice with trembling. He is offering grace to the rebellious kings. He is telling them to come and serve the Lord. Verse 12. Your translation may say, kiss the son. Pay homage to the son. You know, when, when one king would have to bow before another king and kiss his feet, that was not a sign of the bowing king's power, was it? That was not him saying, look how big and bad I am, but I'm just going to kiss your feet anyway. That is subjugation. That is being on your face, knowing I'm in the presence of someone much greater than me. He is the one we worship. God is begging us, telling us, come, pay homage to the Son. Kiss the Son, or He will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, because that is the absolute truth. We can refuse the grace and the forgiveness that God offers for only so long. We can determine to do it our way. It does not matter what God says, but we will only do it for so long before the wrath of God falls. I want to be at his feet, kissing the sun, not on the receiving end of wrath. And then he says, the last sentence, all those who take refuge in him are happy. See, at the beginning, the king said, we've got to throw off these chains, throw off these bonds. That God does not want us to do what we want to do, therefore we throw off God, and God turns it around on, his, on them and says, if you take refuge in me, then you'll be happy. The implication being, there is no happiness outside of refuge in God. We think we've got our plans. We think we are right when, in fact, God is saying, follow me. Listen to me. So we see from this psalm, because of God's installation and his exaltation of his son as ultimate ruler, then we should submit to Christ now because that is the king he's talking about. We get a few years past the psalmist, and most Old Testament prophecies are this way. The writers wrote something, and they had in mind what, they, they may have had in mind, what God was telling them to write about, saying, yeah, oh, I, yeah, God, I see that, great, that's awesome, you're going to do this in the next 10 years, 3 years, 20 years. And then God says, oh, 
You're so short-sighted. Let me tell you what I'm going to do for the end of time. Let me tell you what I will do in eternity. I'm telling you right here in Psalm 2 that I am doing something great. When I install and exalt my son, I am planning for eternity, not just for right now. Three applications I see here that we need to do. We need to, first of all, make Jesus the king of our election. I know that's heavy on our minds and our our hearts, we, we're, we're looking around and we're thinking, really? This is it? And we, are, we have very strong opinions, different directions, and I understand that. I'm certainly not going to stand up here and declare, but I will uh, declare for an, a, a, a candidate, but I will tell you that your vote November 4th, 8th, has to be for Jesus. He's not on the ballot. I've heard that so many times that, that I'm, I, I kind of want to threaten violence for the next person that tells me that. But he is on the ballot. He is on my ballot every day. Every day of my life, I vote whether Jesus is my king or not. And that does not change November 8th when I go into the ballot box, or the, 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 the voting booth. I better be out of the, stay out of the ballot box. That kind of gets you in trouble. When I go in the voting booth, I am deciding on Jesus or something else. I'm deciding whether God is my king, whether Jesus is my king, or if I'm the king. I'm deciding whether I depend on God for my future or a government for my future. Vote, y'all. Vote. Go vote. But when you vote, know that you are not voting for someone who can save you. At best, you're voting on somebody who's probably going to cause more gridlock in government than we already have. doesn't matter who it is. I'm just real cynical about politics right now, but I am not cynical about my God. He is in control. So in this election season, serve actively. Trust God. Serve Him. And every day, elect Him your King. Secondly, make Jesus the King of our church. Another way to put this is to submit completely. Y'all, I said it earlier, nobody in here is the king of our church. Nobody up here, oh, I'm the only one. Nobody up here is the king of our church. We have one head of our church, and that is who we should be following. That is who is in charge. And if we submit our church to the king, then we can be confident of our future. Do we have concerns financially? Yeah. I mean, raise your hand if you don't, in your personal life, have financial concerns. Because I want to come talk to you. Because I personally have them. We're going to have those. But if we will serve our king completely, if we will submit to our king completely, we don't have to worry about finances. We don't have to worry about growing our church we don't have to worry about anything because if we are submitting we will hear god's call we will hear the marching orders we're supposed to have and if we're submitting we'll do it this is god's church does anyone here think god wants his church to fail if you do no he doesn't trust me god is more concerned more in love with your church than either you or i am so if he loves it so much, he is going to take us through 
whatever he has in our future. But we must submit completely. And then the third application I see in Psalm 2 is that we need to make Jesus the king of our life. We need to seek refuge in him, as that last verse says. Right now, somebody in here, you're the king of your life, or the queen of your life, if, if I'm offending any, anyone by using one term. Uh, you're the queen of your life. You've got it figured out. And, and isn't it Dr. Phil that would say, oh, how's that working out for you? You know, how is it? You're, you're the king, you're the queen, everything going good? I promise you, I will make this absolute ironclad, take it to the bank promise. If you will let God rule your life, it still may not go good. But God will be in control. And let me tell you, I would rather have God in control of my chaos than me in control of my chaos. I would rather the one who knows the future, who knows his plans, be the one I'm looking for, even when I can't figure it out, rather than be the one who thinks he's got it all under control when he can't figure it out. But I will also make this promise to you, if you will serve actively, if you will submit completely, and if you will seek refuge in him, I'm going to tell you that some of your problems will go away. I'm not going to make any promises about all of them, but I will tell you it will be better. I will guarantee you that. Derek Kidner, theologian, and I put this one on the screen for you. There is no refuge from him, only in him. Isn't that what Psalm 2 is saying to us? You only have two options, y'all. Serve him or experience his wrath. You know, the Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You, you realize what it's saying there. Every knee will bow. Whether you have trusted Christ in this life or not is really immaterial. Whether you are an atheist or an evolutionist or any otherist, does not matter. Every knee will bow. It just depends on why. Will you choose to bow? Will it be a bowing that occurs because you have followed him, you have served him, and you finally get to see your king? Or will it be you bow because you have been subjugated by the king you fought against your whole life, and now he has defeated you in his anger and wrath? The choice is yours. So I'm begging you today to make Jesus the king of your life. We do that by confessing our sin, acknowledging our sinfulness, repenting of that sin, and turning to him. Trusting him as our savior, putting our faith in him. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are a sinner. You are God's enemy. And you cannot make it on your own. You cannot be the king or queen of your life and get to heaven. You can't fix your sin problem no matter how good you think you are at fixing things. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of your sin, your falling short of the glory, is death, God's wrath, separation from wrath. You see, see how this goes with Psalm 2? See how God's word just works together? You, you don't find the contradictions that some will tell you. It's all right there. The wages of sin is death, but God has a plan. You do not have to experience that sin because the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can have salvation from your sin today. Romans 5, 8, 
God proves his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before you were born, before you took your first breath, before you committed your first sin, Jesus had already died for you. Already. But now you must take that step to him. Romans 10, 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the repentance. That's the understanding. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. I turn from my sin, and I call on him. I trust him for my salvation. Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. You go from chaos to Christ. Your life goes from hopelessness, from destruction, from guaranteed reception of God's wrath to guaranteed reception of God's forgiveness and eternity with him. That is the message of Psalm 2. Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk. I mean, that's the message of the Bible. Will you trust Christ today? Will you make Jesus your king? I pray that you will. Make him your king today. Don't wait. Don't put it off. You don't have tomorrow. You don't have this afternoon. You have right now hearing this message. And that's all you're guaranteed. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you. God, that even in your wrath, even as the appointed time arrives when you will no longer be patient, you are still patient. And God, we have opportunity to serve. We have opportunity to turn. I pray that this morning, that if there's someone here who does not know you as Savior, they will turn to you. God, draw them. Lord, may they come. May they, may they turn. Lord, maybe there's someone here who has accepted you as Savior. They've trusted you for salvation, Jesus, but they are still trying to be the king of their lives. They're still worried about governmental authorities. They're worried about an election. God, they are, they're, they're concerned about submitting this church to you. They're, they're concerned about doing, being in control when, when, God, you are in control. I pray this morning they will turn control over to you. All of it. God, we don't run our lives well. But Lord, when we trust in you, when we follow you, when we listen to you, we, we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to concern ourselves. Lord, I pray this morning there's somebody here who needs to turn control back over to you. I pray that they will do it. Lord, this time of invitation, I pray that you would move in a mighty way. Speak to us, draw us to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning... What's your decision? Do you need to follow Christ? We have some things we need to do this morning, and we're going to do them, but I do not want to leave here without giving you an opportunity to respond. So we're going to sing one or two verses at most. So if you have business to do with God, we need to get that done. Don't put it off. Don't think, oh, well, we've got other things to do. I don't want to do it. No, come talk to me. Let me pray with you. Let's stand. Let's sing. Come to Christ. Give him back control. Whatever you need to do this morning, you do it as we sing.